And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. And what is your decision? What Jesus does is he takes this and says, let's understand what that means. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am and you will see the son of man. That term is so valuable and critical to Old Testament prophecy. Because in Daniel 7, there is the imagery of the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days and He receives glory and power and dominion. And what you see the Son of Man doing in Daniel 7 is judging and destroying all worldly false nations that stand against the power of God. And what Jesus just did is he just labeled Israel as one of those. I am and you will see the Son of Man seated the right hand of God in power and coming in the clouds. Imagery of judgment and power. And that's why Caiaphas says what he says. What further witnesses do we need? He's claimed it. He's claimed it right there. He has spoken judgment against Israel, incriminated the nation, declared himself to be the Messiah and the Son of God and the Son of Man of Daniel 7. That's all we need. We got him. And turns and asks, what is your judgment? And verse 64 says, they all condemned him as deserving of death. The whole Sanhedrin council, the elders, the chief priests, everybody, all of the leaders of the nation, all declare it. Mission accomplished. The whole goal is to get Jesus to be put to death. The whole goal is to try to find some kind of evidence. And that is exactly what has happened. With all the testimony not agreeing, the false witnesses that are trotted in, even though we see that they're violating the law by bearing false witness and nothing is working, Caiaphas, the high priest, takes matters into his own hands. Are you the Messiah? I am. And you are going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds. And rather than listening to what that could possibly mean and consider, they say he's all worthy of death. Verse 65, and they begin to spit on him. And they cover his face and they strike him. And they tell him to prophesy. The guards then begin to punch him, receive him with blows. Now the physical abuse begins. Just imagine that scene as the condemnation of death has now been levied. And Jesus now begins to endure the suffering that is about to fully unveil itself over this evening. With people just acting in some wretched awfulness, spitting on him, covering his head, saying, oh, if you're a prophet, prophesy. Who just hit you? Come on. You say you're the son of God and you're a Messiah and you're a prophet. Tell us who just hit you now. 
And who just hits you now? As they begin to beat on him. It is interesting what Mark does with that as he presses pause of what's going on inside the home of the high priest as this council has convened. And outside in the courtyard in verse 66, we see that Peter is below in the courtyard and one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. You are always with him. We've seen you with Jesus. We saw you all week this week with him. He's been in Jerusalem this whole week. You can imagine the servant girl. I know who you are. You're one of them. We've seen you travel with him all the time in here. You've been with him for years. Verse 68. He denied it and said, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Put that in our language, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. No, you're surely one of those, I don't know what you're talking about. And with that, you'll notice it says in the middle of verse 68, he went out to the gateway and the rooster crowed, leaving by the fire and moving away from the servant girl and moves over to the gate of the courtyard. And notice then what happens. Verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, so visualize Peter's now moved himself over there, but the servant girl's not done. Servant girl's talking to the other people now. And the servant girl is saying to the bystanders, this man is one of them. I know I've seen him before. He has been with that Nazarene. And she's going around telling everybody that's there by the fire, he's one of them. Verse 70, but he denied it again. I'm not. Don't know what you're talking about. I have not been with him. I don't know what you mean, nor do I understand what you're saying. Middle of verse 70, after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Of course you're one of them. You're not from around here. You don't belong here. You're not a Judean. You're a Galilean. We know you clearly are a disciple of his. We know you belong with him. You can't deny this. We know you're one with him. Verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear... I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now it's important to clarify because I've seen some curious things about this. The wording here is not the way we would word it, that Peter is not full of laced profanity now unfolding over all of this. Actually, I think what he's doing is arguably worse. What he is doing is he is saying, let there be a curse upon me as I take an oath before God that I don't know this person. And if that I be lying, then curses come upon me. He's taking a very serious oath before them. There is no way I know him. 
There's no mild, you know, oh, I don't know him. He is very strong in his statement here. Invoking a curse. And I'd be cursed if I know this person. If I'd be lying about this. I take my oath before God that I do not know that man. Verse 72, immediately. Oh, God does that. You know, Peter didn't have to wait for that one. Immediately after those words come out of his mouth, the rooster crows. <coughs> and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. As soon as that rooster goes off, all of a sudden he remembers what conversation. He and Jesus had had just a couple hours earlier. Jesus had said, you'll all fall away. And all the disciples said, no, we won't. And Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter goes, I'd rather die than do that. And now it happens. Three times in just a matter of an hour or two before the sun had even come up, Peter is denied his Lord. I think it's important for us to consider exactly what's underneath this. Why does this happen? With all that Peter says, there's no way. I love you, Lord. I would never deny you. I would go to the death for you. I would never do anything like that. Remember, it's even Peter, when Judas comes and kisses Jesus, that he's pulling sword and ready to go. Let's do this. He's with Jesus. But then in the courtyard, everything changes. And I mentioned to you last week that it's hard for us to give enough intensity to the danger of the situation. We saw that some, as Mark gives us even more information than the other Gospels, about attempting to seize one of these young men who runs away naked, leaving his loincloth behind and going, well, uh, anything to not be arrested. This is an absolutely dangerous scene. Peter, one of the disciples, is right there in the courtyard of the high priest where what are they doing to Jesus but punching him and spitting on him and have condemned him of death? Do you suppose that they would have any trouble doing that to the followers as well? This is a dangerous situation. This is not something small that Peter is denying, but this is a time of danger. And I think it is so important to see that this is ultimately what the issue is, is at this moment we see that it was more important to save himself than to confess Jesus. Ultimately, is that not what denial revolves around? Is in the time of crisis, when put in the moment... Self-preservation of some kind, whether it be reputation or honor, 
what people think or what they may do rises up. It is, I think, of no accident that earlier in Mark, you have Jesus describing what a true disciple would look like. I'll remind you of Mark chapter 8 and verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. I want you just to hear the repetition of this. So, Whoever tries to save their life to be a disciple of mine, they're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, then you're going to gain it. You're going to save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. Whoever would be ashamed of me. This is that moment right here. Here's the challenge that's laid out right here. Are you willing to confess Jesus? Or will you be ashamed of Him? Will you be ashamed of being a follower? Will you be ashamed to admit your love for Him? That you follow Him? That you are a disciple? That your life revolves around Him? What you are seeing happening in this scene and what Jesus has said as his teaching earlier needs to happen is Jesus has to be more precious than even life itself. It's the only way there will be any success in this. The only way to not deny Jesus in the face of imminent life threatened danger is that Jesus has to be more precious than life. If he's not, we'll always choose life. We'll always choose a thing that's of the higher value to us. It's like the whole pyramid of needs thing. Self-preservation sits on top. And if Jesus doesn't go higher than that, then self-preservation is going to win. And that's what happens in this scene. In the face of imminent danger, in the face of who knows what may happen to him at this moment. He's more, it's more important for Peter to save his life than to lose it. And the very thing that Jesus had taught. I want us to consider, and again, thinking about this paragraph. That denial is ultimately and can simply be just concealing who we are. That's what Peter's doing here as he starts out. So I'm just going to sit here by the fire and keep to myself and let nobody know who I am. You're one of them. No, I don't know what you're talking about. No, no, I don't know what you're talking about. 
You know, notice it's not a, there is no God and I don't believe in Jesus. You know, it's not this kind of denial like that. That's sometimes how we often think of denial is, you know, this outright rejection of God and there is no Jesus and I don't believe in him. That's not what Peter's doing. Peter's just going, ah. I just stay undercover and conceal my identity as a Christian. I don't want anybody to know that right now. It's interesting to think about. It's something that I've pondered some, particularly where our culture is today. It's easy to claim to be a Christian when it's to our personal advantage. I'm sure if I asked everybody right now, and I just said I would like everybody to stand up one by one and confess that they love Jesus, I think I could get the whole room to do it. (laughs) I think if we changed the forum and we were all assembled somewhere else, the answer might be somewhat different. It's easy to do it to our own personal advantage when everybody else is with us When you have the 11 disciples all together saying, no, we would never deny you. We will go to the death. I mean, that's easy when we're all together. All right. You know, all for one and one for all. The disciples say, there's no way we would ever turn you down. But what about when it's not to our personal advantage? That's really when the test of denial is made. When it's not to our personal advantage. See, the question that is being brought to us is, do we claim Jesus no matter what, no matter the individual we're talking to, and no matter the circumstance, or only when it's favorable for us to do so? If we perceive that there is a good outcome in doing it, that there won't be repercussions, there won't be negative consequences, then we will say something. I'll say something to my neighbor and they'll know I'm a Christian because I'm safe with them and it's okay, but not that neighbor because I don't know what they're going to do or what they're going to think. Or not that co-worker or not that boss or not that individual or that friend or that family member. We go through that grid in thinking. Often what defines if we are going to represent Jesus or not to the world as if it is of a personal advantage or will be favorable to us. And I will submit to you, that's not discipleship. And that's what makes this text really hard. Really, really bone-crushingly hard. And what we have to see is we're in a shift in our culture. If we reverse 60 to 70 years, it was culturally favorable to be a Christian and it was a negative to not be a Christian. It was socially unacceptable. You had negative repercussions, negative consequences for not being a Christian. So guess what? We were a Christian nation. (laughs) No problem. We all love God. We're all good. Now look back more 30 years. Well, it's not that it would be a negative to not be a Christian, but if you were a Christian, there were still some positive benefits. 
You were considered ethical. You were considered a good worker. You were considered somebody trustworthy. You were considered someone who wouldn't lie. And so there was still positive benefit to being a Christian in public because there still weren't negative consequences. There were people that looked at you and went, okay, that's kind of your choice. That's kind of strange, but that means you're a good person and so you're okay. That's the world I grew up in. That was my, that was my former world. Now, what's our world? Not that. Now, if you proclaim Christ, there are zero positive benefits in our society, or minuscule at best. And the question is, will we still proclaim Jesus, our love for Jesus, our discipleship to him, even though now, not only is there not a positive benefit to our culture, we are now beginning to receive negative consequences for it. You see, the shift has changed. 60 years ago, not being a Christian had the negative consequences. Now, being the Christian has the negative consequences. What will we do with that? And what I want us to recognize from our text, there's no such thing as a hidden disciple. There's not. And you go, wait, prove, prove that. Okay, I will Matthew 5.16 In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. There's one. (laughs) There's no such thing as a hidden disciple. You can't do it. Because the whole reason we are here is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's our purpose. That's who we are. That's what it's all about, is giving God glory and showing His goodness on the earth. If we are hidden disciples, we can't do that. And that means this is a massive failure. There's no such thing as being a hidden disciple. And I'm afraid what is happening to us in our day, in our time, in our culture is pushing us into that very reality. Is that our greatest temptation right now is that we will conceal Christ. We will not reveal who we are. We will not reveal our love for the Lord. We will not reveal our faith unless it has a favorable outcome to us. And what I want you to see is that's what Peter's doing. (coughs) The reason he denies is because it is not going to be a favorable outcome. When the servant girl says, you're one of them, there is no favorable outcome to say, yes, I am. I love Jesus and I will go with him and I'm like inside so I can stand next to him. There is no favorable outcome to that. That's why he says, no, I'm not. I don't know what you're talking about. And friends, I submit to you, that's why we will conceal as well. is because there's not a favorable outcome. 
And so we back off, we hide our light, we do not proclaim who we are. And that's denial. In fact, I left off a verse, and I'll add it back in. I started that quotation from Mark 8, one verse early, because I wanted to save the opening to this. Before he says all about about being ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us and how we can't deny him. Notice what he defines that as, the verse right in front of that. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. And guess what the next breath is? If you're ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you when I come. If you deny me, see the whole thing is carrying the cross means we don't deny him. Carrying the cross means we confess him when it's not advantageous to us. Carrying the cross means when it's not a favorable outcome, we will still proclaim that we are disciples of Jesus. It's interesting as I have thought about how we've often defined carrying the cross and we often have defined carrying the cross in ways so that it looks like we're carrying the cross. That's the easiest way to do that. I'm carrying the cross, of course. Woke up this morning early for you. What do you you want? (laughs) I'll be here tonight. I'm carrying my cross. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to carry my cross. And then the very next line is, that means you don't deny me ever. That means that we confess him even when it hurts. Or to put that another way, we cannot claim Jesus only when it's convenient only when it's socially acceptable or only when it's socially advantageous. We're not Christians only when it's for our own good. We don't conceal just because I don't know how this is going to turn out. Our very purpose, the very reason we're here, is that through our mouth and through our actions, people see God and are glorified. How else are they going to become followers if it's not by what we say and what we do? If as the culture turns against God, we conceal ourselves that will only hasten the judgment. As the culture turns more against God, the more we have to shine as lights in the darkness. The more we have to proclaim our faith. The more we have to state who we are and why we believe. Would you pray with me right now? God, this is a hard, hard text. 
Lord, I pray for forgiveness for each of us, for myself, as often as we have concealed and hidden our discipleship from the world. And we see how easy it is for us to only claim you when it's for our own good. Lord, we pray for a greater courage, a greater faith, and a greater strength in a world right now that stands in full antagonism against you. We need your help and we need your strength so that we will be the lights that we need to be. God, forgive us for how often we have failed. And Lord, help us be the lights that we need to be going forward today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's at the end of the story, and I don't like giving away the endings too early. But even after Peter's massive denial, critical failure, takes him back remember Jesus words you will all fall but when I am raised I will go ahead of you to Galilee all hope's not lost may we stop denying our Lord turn away from our sins and follow him all the way home to be with him So we can help you this morning. What can we do to help you in your faith? If you're not a disciple of Jesus, we want you to see that following Jesus is the most beautiful thing and the most precious thing you can do in this world. The most important thing you can do to save your soul is to follow him and serve him with all of your heart. And I don't suppose that I'm by myself after listening and thinking about this lesson going, what a horrible failure I am in the picture of denial. How easy it is to conceal. May we take our honest prayers before God and let us do our very best to no longer hide Him in what we say and what we do. If you need our help, we're happy to assist you now. Won't you come as we stand and walk?